Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Okay, welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Today I'm with Charles Eisenstein, a speaker, a teacher, a writer who focuses on the themes of consciousness, money, human cultural evolution, and, and more. Charles, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Jiro. Yeah, hi. It's good to be here. Thanks, man. Just, just so we can place you, um, tell, us, tell us where you're at right now. Um, well, I've just moved to Asheville, North Carolina in the United States. Um, and I'm sitting here in my home office. Awesome, man. Awesome. So, yeah, I mean, I've been, I think I first came across you uh, five or six years ago. And, and since then, um, I've read a couple of your books and really fascinating to me. Um, tell us a little bit about, just so that the listener can place you, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, what you're best known for. I, I think I'm still probably best known for a book called Sacred Economics that I wrote. I mean, I did the writing like six years ago, mostly. It came out in 2011. Um, and it's a lot about uh, the basic nature of money, why it's uh, working less and less well, um, and what transition is in front of us and how we can participate in it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I did a lot of speaking, public speaking on that, a lot of writing on that. Um, but since then, I've I still kind of maintain that as a sideline, but I'm talking a lot more now about, uh, you could call it narrative change, mm. uh, the, the changing mythology that is, that we don't even recognize as a mythology that's kind of, that's running our civilization. Interesting. So let's, let's trace your background a little bit because you, I suppose you trained as, as an economist. Is, is that right? No, 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 I didn't. Ah, no, no, okay. I, yeah, I mean, I, I studied mathematics and philosophy way, way back yeah. in at university. And then, you know, I just, because I thought that that's where the answers were, because that's the foundation of knowledge in our culture. Mathematics is the language of science and philosophy is supposed to be asking the deep questions. And I didn't find the answers I wanted there. So right after university, I basically just jumped ship and moved to Taiwan and translated Chinese for the next eight or nine years uh, and just did a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and living, I guess, and absorbing. Wow. And, so you're pretty much your entire 20s was spent living in Taiwan. Yeah, that's right. And, and I felt in a perverse way, I felt more at home there than to this day than I, than I do in my own country. Why do you think that is? Maybe because, like, at least I had an excuse <laughs> for feeling different, you know, <laughs> whereas here I look pretty much like everybody else. But there, you know, I was tall and white and nobody else was. So yeah. I had at least a reason why I should feel slightly like an alien. I don't know, though. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe there's something karmic. I don't know. Yeah, I, I spent the early part of my 20s living in Asia as well. But I was I was living in Japan, actually. Um Yeah. So I know what you mean. I think it's a super fertile time to, to travel. It's like you've obviously had your, your, your childhood and then your youth and then going through sort of like a traditional 
education system. I imagine you did just like I did. Um, and then you go to somewhere on the other side of the world where they really have fundamentally very different, sometimes opposite uh, ways of looking at things like personal evolution or growth or our meanings of success and things like that. Or, or even even different way of looking at what's real, how um, <clears throat> how life is supposed to be lived, how how change happens, you know, how how to be an effective person. I mean, these assumptions are also very different. Exactly. Did you did you tune into these ideas before you went to Taiwan, or was it was it while you were there that you came across these ideas? Um, no, I would say that I. Before I went, I had this kind of uh, latent dissatisfaction with life as it had been presented to me as normal. You know, here's a normal life. Here's how to live. Here's how to be a man. Uh, I didn't really accept that, but I didn't quite know what there, an alternative was. So when I went there and I began discovering alternatives, the different views of reality and and human beings that existed there, I was like, ah, yes, mm. it gave, it gave uh, expression to a knowing that I'd had, but hadn't really been able to articulate. Mm, interesting. Did you, in, did you immerse yourself in any of the, the traditions of that place? Uh, I wouldn't say I immersed myself in it. I, I, I immersed myself in the language. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I studied some um, Taoism, uh, absorbed Buddhism, uh, just kind of osmotically, you know, yeah. but I never really became a dedicated student of any of those things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a long time to stay over in that part of the world. I think most people go over there for a couple of years, teach some English and then, and then come back. But what was it that kept you, kept you there for, for nearly a decade? Oh, the answer isn't that sexy, really. I mean, I think I just got, um, kind of stuck in my routines a bit. Uh, the, I was doing translation, so I was making a really good living. Yeah. Life was pretty comfortable. Um, you know, I had a good life for myself. And then uh, two things happened. One is I um, got married and we had our first child and, and it was a really hard place to raise a child. And then also I just got really tired of doing the work I'd been doing. And I, I you know, began exploring or integrating the ideas that I'd been reading about and thinking about my entire twenties. And, and I guess this might actually be related to the, the theme of your podcast here, because um, even though I was extremely effective and, and gifted at the work that I was doing, because it became less and less meaningful to me, my um, enthusiasm waned and I became, you know, it became a drag to even just get up in the morning. Hmm. Uh, and, and, it, and no matter what techniques I would try to use to motivate myself, those wouldn't work. Eventually, my only motivation became money. You know, how much am I making per hour doing this? What had become rather tedious. Hmm. I mean, there's still an element of creativity, but, but it was kind of like the engine, the engine beneath my effectiveness, productivity, creativity was uh, no longer working. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what 
really, I, I felt like I had to totally change my environment, change the conditions, the ground conditions of my life in order to reorient toward uh, what I was passionate about, what I wanted to do in life. Fantastic. Yeah, I can really relate to that feeling of the, the original conditions that brought, that brought joy or made you feel alive dissipating and you being left with the barrenness of exchanging yeah. your time for money. It really is a, I think you talk of it in being terms of a, a kind of slavery that we've all just kind of just accepted. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to live their own life. We don't want to live the life we're paid to live. And no matter how much you're paid to live it, even if you're, you know, working on Wall Street and making $5 million or $10 million a year, no matter how much you're being paid to live a life that's not yours, you're going to rebel against it, maybe consciously or maybe unconsciously through self-sabotage, addiction, depression, motorcycle accident, <laughs> you know, but but because we're not meant to be slaves to to not meant to live the life that someone else tells us to live. No one wants to do that. Absolutely not. And I've seen it, I, I spent a bunch of my career wearing a suit, working in a skyscraper in, in Hong Kong, which is possibly one of the most uh, financially motivated places on the planet. Yeah. And I saw a hell of a lot of that, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, success in inverted commas, a lot of, you know, the flash cars and the fancy holidays and, you know, people really like chasing the carrot and really like succeeding and catching the carrot, but there being this absolute barrenness emptiness to it um, yeah which is actually the journey that started that that's the thing that started me off on my journey with flow state interestingly mm -hmm. enough so what what was it or what is it in your life um, that has made you feel most alive or most human oh i guess it would be my intimate relationships mm. which i mean you know not only with with women uh, but, you know, with my children, with my friends, with with nature, with other beings in nature. Um, and also, I guess I would even extend that to the intimate relationship I have to the ideas that I write about, the work that I do. I don't, I don't really even see those as my production so much as um, something that I come in that that exists outside of myself that I come into relationship with. And then through that intimate relationship become the mouthpiece or the, the servant of those ideas. Um, so, yeah, all those things or even also, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. So um, there's an intimacy there, too, when I'm really speaking to that audience. You know, I can see the light in their eyes. I can see the 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 expressions on their faces. There's a it's actually a two-way communication. I never come with a canned speech or anything like that. I'm always uh, just, you know, in the moment, like I am right now. You know, I, right. have, it's not, I didn't plan out I was going to say this. Yeah. Uh, and, and that also um, makes me come alive, those yeah. situations. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Fantastic. What, I, I just had a, a question that came up in my head about, because you spent some time living in, in, in the East, living in Taiwan, um, Talk to me about the, the different constructs, mental constructs, cultural constructs surrounding money. 
um, in relation to that part of the world and I guess the Western world. Because I see, like, I think, like, Buddha over there is represented as a, as a, as a fat dude who's... And that, and that fatness seems to represent to me some sort of, I don't know, ma, ma, like, a, a different relationship with materialism. Um, yeah. Do you agree? Well, I mean, there's different Buddhas, you know, uh, and different Bodhisattvas. Some of them are thin, some of them are, are fat, you know. But, uh, yeah, there's certainly differences in the attitude towards money there, but I think that those differences are not nearly as great as the differences between modern any modern culture and um, indigenous cultures yeah. when it comes to money. You know, the U.S., China, Japan, whatever, Taiwan, I mean, they all, the, the you know, Europe, I mean, we all pretty much conceive of wealth mm. as controlling, possessing a lot of resources, financial or otherwise. But that's wealth is a matter of how much you have. And in Taiwan, I mean, there was still um, there, there were still uh, vestiges of an earlier culture that was based on gift. Um, to this day, gift culture is much more alive there than it is here. And and, and so some of those were a bit um, of a cultural shock to me, uh, for example, here. And this may seem trivial, but it's actually quite important. You know, here, when people go to a restaurant, um, they'll split the they'll split the tab usually, or they'll have some kind of arrangement. In Taiwan, people would fall over themselves to try to pick up the tab for the other person. Occasionally, people will actually get into fights over who gets to pay, because and this is a a remnant of gift of a gift society where social power comes not through control and hoarding, but through generosity. The more you give, then the more uh, you're in a high status position because other people, everyone else kind of owes it to you. They, they owe you an obligation. And, and, and so giving a gift can be, um, at, at one extreme, it can be even a power play where mm. you gain power over the person who receives the gift. And so there was, there was much more of that in Taiwan um, especially when I was there. I don't know how it is now because this was a while ago, but there was more of that there then than, than there is now. Yeah. Um, and so then there is here. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've observed that dynamic, in fact, um, the, 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 the power play of, of the gifting. Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, yeah, very interesting. So why, why do you feel like in our culture and, and maybe over there as well, uh, success is so uh, interwoven with, with, with money and, and, and financial means? Well, I mean, this is a complicated question. I'll, I'll just maybe un, unravel one thread of that. Uh, part of it has to do with the decline of community. Today, unlike, say, 200 years ago, suppose you lived in a you know, small village in Europe or in the Australian outback or something 200 years ago, your security and your well-being depended on the goodwill of your neighbors, depended on your social relationships. If you, you know, got bitten by a snake and were bedridden for a month, you would not survive if your neighbors and relatives didn't take care of you. If your house burned down, you would not have a new house unless the whole village got together and built you a new house. So, so it didn't matter how much money you had because you couldn't pay for these things. 
it wasn't a fully monetized culture. Today, though, you don't need any of that. You could be um, on bad terms with every single person on your street, every single person in your town even. But if you have enough money, you can still meet all of your needs. So security depends today not on human relationships. Well, what I'm saying isn't entirely true, okay? But, but the system makes it look as if security and well-being depend not on your relationships, but merely on your money. Money is deeply associated with security for that reason. So no wonder we all, we, we, you know, we associate that with success because that's the way mm. that our economy works. Uh, and I'll add to that, that the structure of our economy and our money system in particular also sets us into competition with each other because, yes. because there's never enough money. There's always more debt than there is money uh, systemically. Uh, so we're always in competition with each other. Therefore, your success kind of implies my failure. You know, you got the deal. I didn't. You got the job. I didn't. Whereas in the Australian outback, in early times, your, your neighbor's good fortune was your good fortune too, because it made the whole community stronger and better able to take care of each other. That's so, so in a cooperative setting, in mm. a gift economy, there's, um, we have a different perception of each other. We're no longer um, envious mm. uh, of each other. Our security no longer depends on outcompeting others. And there still might be competition, but it's not for the basis of material security. Hmm. So really, it's it's it all it all boils down to separation versus inseparation. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Interesting. Have you um, have you been to Burning Man? No, I haven't gotten there. Yeah, um, I was at the Australian version of Burning Man just a few weeks ago, which is obviously a, a much smaller scale version of, mm. of, of the big Burning Man. But the same principles apply. There's still this uh, sharing economy or gift economy and, and, you, and you rock up and there's, there's no money and you, know, yeah. you, you wander around and you find people to feed you and to water you and to, to entertain you. And, and, yeah. it's, and it's very much the energy of... Um, I, I, in, in my giving, I'm also receiving. And yeah. I feel like that's sort of like a fundamental, there's, there's something in our culture where we've got a, this fundamental um, flaw around what it is to give. Like, like giving almost implies like uh, something's, something's being taken away from us, like we're giving. Whereas through personal experience, I'm sure we can all feel that actually when we give, we receive something. Like, feels awesome we, or we receive gratitude it seems to be like that do you agree it's sort of like a, a cycle that fuels itself um, when you actually get into the spirit of it yeah uh, I mean I would I would agree 90 percent I, I I've been you know on this path for a while and, and learning that there are also times not to give and times also to refuse a gift that's given like I gave away my hat a few months ago to this guy and I just really regretted it later. <laughs> and I, when I felt into it, like at that moment, I didn't really want to give the hat, you know, this, 
we, we, we see gift as this, like you said, this act of self-sacrifice mm. and, and think that we have to overcome something in ourselves in order to give. But really, it should be a natural flow. It should be it should come out of desire and it should come out of a feeling of gratitude when mm. when and, and, you know, so there's moments where it, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't want to uphold gift as some standard to aspire to. And, and if you do it, then you're, you know, an admirable person. Mm. It, it should really be part of the um, it should be an expression of the pleasure of being alive. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I've just, yeah. I've just come back from a ceremony myself. I, I, was, I spent the weekend um, doing shamanic work, uh, plant medicine mm. work, and which involved um, San Pedro and ayahuasca. And really, I was, I was spending time in the forest and I was basically getting a lot of wisdom from, from the trees. And yeah. what I could see from these trees was that the one particular magnificent tree that was just stood there very proudly and and it had a certain swagger about it. it had a certain you know confidence and warrior spirit about this particular tree and i could see that this tree through its through its root system which i equate to sort of its its awareness and through its mm. its the trunk which i equate to the power of its you know the power that we gain through rituals and habits and the choices we make it was basically expressing its life force in the form of its foliage and its leaves. And yeah. that was the purpose of the tree, to basically express its life force. And in the expression of that life force, photosynthesis takes place, and obviously the process of giving and receiving. And I wonder how different we are, you know, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I had this real breakthrough moment. Where I was like, wow, purpose. I just gotta, we all got to stop looking for it out there. And just be like the tree and just yeah. express what is in us and therefore live our purpose. Yeah. I mean, this whole question of, of flow states that you're, you know, exploring, mm. uh, maybe that it's really a matter of finding, like you said, finding um, opportunities for the exuberant expression of your life force. And if you are not in a flow state, you could just see that as a symptom of, oh, I am not in circumstances that accommodate the exuberant expression of my life force. Mm. Rather than trying to like do something to fix ourselves, you know, maybe it's not yourself that's the problem. Maybe it's something in the environment. Because I don't know if, about you, but like if I'm in one of those states where I'm just like, I'm feeling paralyzed, you know, I'm feeling totally unmotivated. I can barely like, you know, get up to even do a little exercise or do anything. Uh, you know, I had a day like that, like just last week, you know, where I just binge watched Sensate. Uh, <laughs> and I could have been like writing an article. I mean, I could have done all this kind of stuff, but just like where I was, you know, and, and it just like, I like, yeah, theoretically, I know these ways that I could motivate myself. You know, I could have done some meditation. I could have done some yoga or something like that. I could have done something, but I didn't have the motivation to do that either. Like, where does that initial impulse come from? And I don't think that it comes from me because I can be in other circumstances and I am effortlessly productive, lucid, 
and motivated. And it would be nice to take credit for that and say, yeah, that was because I got my act together or I, you know, changed my attitude or I did something. But honestly, I think that that motivation is itself a gift that comes to me, whether from other people, from my environment, maybe even, you know, from from some mysterious source, like by grace, it comes to me. Therefore, instead of taking credit for it, the honest response is just gratitude. Oh, thank you that I now feel motivated. Thank you that I now am productive and clear and energetic because something could happen and I could wake up and not be able to get out of bed that day. And just as, yeah, I don't want to blame myself for that. So that's, that's kind of where I am with this question right now. Interesting, man. Very interesting. Yeah, I think it is, we should honor the external circumstances that um, elicit an, an internal state of being. I think you're absolutely right. And it comes down to what you're talking about, the, the, the indigenous tribes and communities. And, you know, I think that one of the, one of the biggest, I guess you would, I, I don't really like using the word, but one of the biggest triggers for a flow state for me is being in a certain group environment. Yeah. Um, having a, a collective goal, feeling like we're all pulling in the same direction. Um, that's a powerful thing. That's very interesting. So exuberant expression of life force. That's a wonderful way to look at flow states, I think. Um, so Charles, it seems to me like you're, would, would, this, would it be accurate to say that your, your work um, in recent months or years has shifted? I guess we're always evolving and you're certainly evolving. Um, talk to me about the, the direction or the type of evolution that, that is happening with your work. Or with you, I guess. Yeah. Well, one thing I've... So I haven't written a book for a couple of years now. Yeah. The last book I read was um, a shorter book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And that was in 2013. And so since then, I've been just doing a lot of public speaking, writing you know essays and articles and stuff and, and filming things. And I've started a podcast. And, but what I'm, and, and right now, I'm also launching a course an online course on masculinity, which I could talk a bit about. Um, but, well, maybe I'll say a couple words about that. It's an exploration of, of what masculinity, it's called Masculinity, A New Story. And it's exploring, you know, when we do away with the old patriarchal masculinity that, you know, doesn't feel anything, is afraid to cry, is, is you know, just macho and and maybe even abusive and and aggressive and and like when we do when we you know we reject that but what comes after that you know it's not just a retreat into being soft and sensitive and feminine and so on and so forth i mean those are nice things but like what about the next expression of a real masculine energy what would that look like so that's the the kind of basis of this of this course that starting in a couple of weeks and I've been going around, I was just in the UK interviewing some extraordinary people that I've come across who seem to hold some wisdom about this and, and live, live it. Really? Uh, which isn't necessarily me. Like I'm not, you know, the expert on being masculine, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in an inquiry about it. And, and so what I'm learning though, to answer your question is that I better be really careful what I put out there because 
when I start to investigate something, then it starts to give me sometimes painful uh, or humiliating life lessons around it. Uh, it brings that field into my life. So it's not just an intellectual exploration I'm doing of the sacred masculine, mm. but it's also like really hitting home, like all the ways in which I've been out of integrity, all the ways in which I've been weak, all the ways in which I've been, you know, immature, mm. uh, you know, uh, a boy and not a man, mm. uh, like all these things are just being shown to me in a, in a clear and sometimes harsh light. Mm. So, so I've been, you know, I it's guess it's all part it's, of your journey though, isn't it? It's, it's very fascinating yeah. because what I, what I'm hearing, what I'm feeling is that the, you know, the time, the stage in your life where you're writing uh, sacred economics and you're doing a lot of talks and commentary around the gift economy, it almost seems like that was a, a stage in your life where you were looking at the macro and you're looking at mm -hmm. systemic change. Whereas it seems to me that you're shifting into this stage in your life where you're looking at the micro, you're looking at the individual change, you're, what, what is innate within you. And really when you boil it down, we have the masculine and the feminine energies. And yeah. it really seems to be like this is, this is how your life path is, is, is evolving, which is, yeah, has a lot of parallels with, with my own as well. Um, yeah. And, and the macro and the micro are, are, are intimately connected too. Mm. Because you, you look around at the planet and it's not hard to say, well, the problem here is masculine energy run amok. You know, it's, it's, it's a patriarchal system and mostly men who have been destroying nature and oppressing other nations and so on and so forth, you know. So the healing of the masculine, you know, it, we, we hear a lot about healing the feminine and the divine feminine and, and that kind of thing. But I think healing the masculine is crucial so what, what we're doing on a personal level also has systemic Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I tune into, I'm sure you're the same, but when you really, really think about what is required, what will be the catalyst for there to be profound level, you know, large-scale change on this planet and for our species, it, it all boils down to that micro it all boils down to the, the, the domino effect of each individual having some sort of shift in consciousness. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the micro yeah. becomes the macro, right? And, and vice versa, too. Like, I'm not, I'm not you know, advocating that, that people never engage with, you know, political or social levels of reality. I think mm. that's important, too. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to write an article on the TPP you know, the, the new agreement that's going to be the nail in the coffin for our planet if we don't stop it. You know, I'm, I'm engaged in that conversation, too. But it's not. Um, honestly, it's. No, I'm not going to say it's. It's not as alive for me. It's it's um, it's not what's most engaging me right now. And I think we all naturally go through phases of engagement of more inner uh, close things. And then sometimes we go through a phase of more outward focus and, and to really trust that process mm. and trust what, what's calling to you right now. Um, where does your life energy want to flow mm. to trust that? Then 
then I think then it's that's only when the flow states really start to happen. Oh, absolutely. That trusting that intuition, being able to first of all being aware of it, then being able to listen to it, because yeah. it can be a very subtle thing at, at first. And if you're living from you know a place of heavily conditioned programs, then it's almost like it's not there, but it is there. Yeah. It's to listen just, to it. Yeah, to listen yeah. to it. It's yeah, and that's art. actually, um, uh, coincidentally enough, that's one of the qualities of the healthier, sacred, mature masculine that has been coming up a lot in these conversations, the quality of, of deep listening, of being able to, to be so present that you're capable of hearing everything without and anything, without losing it, without going into reactivity, without... Uh, running away from it, you know, to be able to stand present and to really listen, mm. that quality of, of presence and patience that could come up when, uh, and you said that many of your, maybe most of your listeners are men. So, you know, let's, so it could come up when you're faced with an angry woman, you know, or an emotional woman. Mm. And like, can you hold that presence mm. without just walling yourself off, without capitulating without fighting back, but just to really hear, mm. you know, to really see her, really hear her, take it all in without being shaken loose. Mm. Can you do that? And I think that's kind of the same skill that's required to, as you were talking about, listen to your intuition, because the intuition doesn't come as this naked flash of insight. Usually it's surrounded by all kinds of emotional uh, forces that try to shake you loose, that try to obscure that intuition, that try to have you listen to, to, to be a slave to fear or greed or something like that. So I think it's that same quality of holding presence that allows us to hear the call of our mission and our passion as men. Mm, absolutely. Or, or, I mean, I could be talking to the you know, inner masculine of a woman too, like this isn't just for men, but, but and that same listening, I think, is also what we need to cultivate in our relationship to nature which is maybe another um, expression of the feminine. You know, what does nature want rather than how can we best use and exploit nature for our advantage? Like that's what men have done to women in patriarchy and that's what we do to nature. And so I think that the same cultivation of, of uh, a trait that I often identify as masculine, this trait of... Um, of deep presence and listening. I think this is mm. important on, on every level. I agree. And I noticed that in many indigenous cultures, certainly in Australia, I, I believe the word is dandiri, but uh, it's a word that basically means deep listening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, listening far beyond the level of thought, like listening very deeply, and it's basically an intuition, or beyond an intuition, listening to the collective consciousness or listening to mother nature, however, however you phrase it. But mm -hmm. um, that is an integral part of masculinity in, in some of these uh, non-industrial, non-Western cultures. Um, is that right? They, they, they actually associate that with the masculine and not just yes. as a, a good human quality. Yes, that's my belief. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. tell, me, um, tell me more about... The, the course that you're putting together, I mean, because this, this is so interesting. So obviously it's come from a place of calling and in, in, intuitive kind of innate uh, level of behavior in you. Um, because I guess when you graduated from 
from Yale and you had your maths and your philosophy degree and you, and you were writing um, books on basically economics, um, it, 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 you probably, you might not have been able to see that you were going to move into this direction of exploring the sacred masculine. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's, what's really the root there? Was there a defining moment or has it been a gradual kind of metamorphosis? Well, I guess it's kind of always been in the background. Mm. Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason in the last couple of years, people have started to ask me about it. And I've, it's also been coming up. I mean, you know, I'm a man. I mean, I have relationships that, that, you know, have taught me that I have something still to learn. So I, I guess I'm very personally curious. Uh, uh, I, I guess part of it, you know, I, I speak of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. It's kind of a, uh, I used, I, you know, used that as a book title. I kind of use that as, as a catchphrase. But I also think of the more beautiful life or the more beautiful self my heart knows is possible. Like, like which is recognizing that what we are offered as the standard of happiness or fulfillment is a pale imitation of what human life could really be. Hmm. And I've had experiences, maybe like the one you had, you know, in your, in the medicine ceremony, you know, I've yeah. had experiences that have confirmed that, that suspicion, that, that life can be just so much more vivid, more authentic, more hmm. intimate, more real, more alive, you know, and I want that. And I can't really rest if I'm not, somehow pursuing that. And so I think that's another reason why I'm now actively exploring, you know, mm-hmm. as a man, I'm exploring, well, what is it to be a man? What is it? What is masculinity? Um, so it's very personal. Mm. Oh, man. And, yeah. it, mm. it's, it, it, really, um, it really resonates with me. And, and it's, it's, it's so interesting how, I guess, as, as we as a collective go through shifts, as we, as we learn, as we evolve as a species, um, certain things come up, certain themes come up, and and there are there are men in Australia who are very much involved. I mean, it's a global thing. This this uh, re-examination of what it is to be a man, and mm-hmm. it's it's so needed. Um, you know, you look at some of the models of masculinity that that are prevalent in our culture, and and, and it's really not hard to see the the damage and the emotional repression, and yeah. um, the the. St- the stuntedness of it, like the, the inability to fully express as, as, a, as a being, that those models um, are, are enforcing that kind of prison that we're in. So, yeah, it's, yeah I salute you, man. It's, it's fantastic work that you're doing. Um, tell us more about the... You, you say that you came across these guys in the UK. Are they part of a community? Is it just... Is it, no, no, they're scholars? Just, no, no, there's... I mean, there's just... I, I'm... I'm, I'm you know, there'll be eight to ten sessions, each with a different guest presenter, basically. Um, but it's not really a presentation. It's more I record a conversation yeah. with somebody extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we play that conversation. And then then people kind of go back to an online forum and, and they integrate it, digest it. And then five or seven days later, there's a, a live session with that presenter and myself 
where the people can ask questions. And, and so there's an interactive part and then there's a receptive part. And uh, so the, two of the guys just happen to be in the UK mm. uh, and the others are, mm. um, I guess, mostly in the US. Yeah, I'd like to, um, after this show, I'd like to connect you with a friend of mine called Dane Thomas, who's uh, doing work in this, in this same space in Australia. And, yeah, there's uh, tons of people doing, doing the work. I mean, yeah. you know, and the movement goes back to, I mean, I guess Robert Bly was the person who's kind of most associated yep. with the, the birth of the men's movement. Um, I'm just uh, reacquainting myself with his book, Iron John, really great book. Yes, it was just yeah. recommended to me um, two yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, it's still relevant. I mean, he wrote it in like 1990, but yeah, it's it's still relevant. But yeah, you know, I mean, there's probably a hundred people I could. So, so what, let's let's talk about resources because obviously David Data seems to be getting um, a lot of props these days. Um, yeah. for the work that he's doing on on the masculine. Iron John is another book that you just 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 referenced. Um, yeah. Are there any other resources that um, that men or women out there who are exploring these new ideas and paradigms could look look at? Well, I love Moore's book, uh, you know, on the four male archetypes, um, warrior, lover, magician, king, yeah. beautiful book. Uh, but, you know, I mean, this is, again, this is something that uh, an intellectual apprehension of principles mm. only can take you so far. Uh, the, these books and ideas, they do stir something up. They're not you know, useless mental masturbation. They do stir something up. But I think that what they stir up is a desire to um, work with these in a more embodied way. Uh, so, you know, maybe it might be joining a men's group or doing um, some other kind of work. Mm. Um, we, we use, in the course, we're also using story as a technology kind of, as a, as a way to... Um, transmit information that maybe cannot be conceptualized, but it can be uh, delivered in the form of a story. And you, and you don't know, even if you can't explain why the story impacted you, after hearing it, something changes. Mm. So we have, um, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of storytelling that's going to be going on. We need it, man. We need those rites of passage. We need those uh, those stories and fables and all the yeah, things that the elders, classic. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's another theme in the course, you know, that, yeah. that um, our craving for, for initiations and rites of passage, that you can't just invent those and go do them on a weekend, you know, workshop somewhere. Yeah. And then, like, you know, they, they have to be, to be, to be really effective, I think they have to be integrated into the community and integrated into life. And yeah. They're just not part of modern society. So what do you do? Like, you know, and I don't think there's any easy answers to that. Yeah. 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 There's a couple of questions from, from listeners um, that um, I'd love to ask you, um, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the first one is, is around uh, Bitcoins. Um, I, had uh, a, I had a listener who was eager to get your thoughts on Bitcoins or any other alternative currencies for the future. Yeah. Yeah, Bitcoin's, uh, um, I think it's a very illuminating experiment. Um, that has, on the one hand, it has some, what I think to be serious design flaws. Um, not so much in the blockchain. Uh, I, I kind of like that idea. But 
um, in the way that that uh, the money is created and issued. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go into the technical details. Um, basically, you know, as the old story of money falls apart, we are entering um, what you might call a space between stories, where the old isn't working anymore, but we don't know what the new system will be. And in that space, I think, like, I approve of any kind of exploration, you know? I don't think that that the future is going to come because some really smart designer came up with the perfect plan, the perfect blueprint for the perfect platform or something like that. I think that what we end up with will be the result of a period of experimentation and chaos and and learning, and we'll get to something that no one right now could have predicted. So Bitcoin is part of that ferment that... Um, that is exciting to me, you know, so I mm. take my hat off to the inventors of Bitcoin and I wish for them um, the, uh, ref the the flexibility and resourcefulness to not be too tightly attached mm. to the way it is now and to keep innovating mm. and responding. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks for that. And the, the, the sharing economy. Um, so what are your your views on the long-term effects of the sharing economy and how they how this plays out with what the big corporates would would look like or, or how they would respond um, if this sharing economy was to take root um, in our culture. Yeah, you know, people mean different things by sharing economy. On the one hand, there's kind of uh, the dark side of the sharing economy where resources that were once not monetized, become monetized, and people become even more a slave to money. Even their free time is spent driving people around in Uber and stuff like that. Uh, and, 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 you know, the people who are doing that grunt work are often very poorly paid. Um, and there's problems with Airbnb, too, that, that, you know, are sending money to the people who have an extra room or an extra apartment. Meanwhile, People who don't have one can't even find a place to live, you know. So there's all kinds of, there's a dark side to it. But fundamentally, I think it is moving us in a new and hopeful direction uh, simply because it, it allows a much uh, more decentralized economy, uh, more participatory. And um, I guess it, it, yeah, so the decentralization is one thing. Um, and also the, the um, infrastructure of a sharing economy could also work in the presence of a different kind of money system or even without money altogether. The infrastructure can still uh, operate. So I think it kind of offers a uh, perhaps a transition, a, 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 a bridge to the next economy. Mm. where people might be giving each other rides all the time and not paying for it, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Just, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's sort of, yeah, I, I see that sort of thing happening in, in very micro scales and micro communities, people like just giving of themselves. Like in Manly, we yeah. have this, this, I live in like a very much a village kind of, kind of environment and that sort of stuff happens all the time. Um, yeah. just, just one final question. Do you find that 
it's do you find a personal challenge in balancing you know your requirement to earn money and put food on the table and feed your kids and and, and basically generate abundance within this system that we live in and do you find it hard balancing that with your i guess philosophies or views on where we could be as a species uh yeah i've been um doing a lot of exploring in that area as well um i think that this anybody who well not anybody but more and more people who are following their passion and their calling find it difficult to reconcile that with earning a living because the institutions that we live in reward certain professions or certain behaviors, um, certain vocations that essentially are contributing to the conversion of nature into products and the conversion of relationships into services. If you're, if you're participating in the world-destroying machine, you're going to be paid to do it because that's how our money system works. Um, if you are following a calling that does not bring you to producing monetizable goods and services, then you're probably going to have trouble earning a living in the existing economy. The, the, the institutions for a lot of what is attracting people today just don't exist yet. So you, so a lot of us are living kind of on the margins, you know, and, and um, sometimes there is a happy coincidence mm. between monetizability and passion. Mm. But sometimes there's not. And it doesn't mean that you are indulging in victim mentality or scarcity mentality or something like that or that you don't value yourself uh, that's not necessarily it. That's mm. kind of a, a cop-out explanation. Because, I, because yeah. I, I know that you went public on this. I tuned in to, to, to something that was going on in your life on your Facebook page in relation to yeah. the pricing of your course and offering scholarships. And, and, I, and, I, and I feel like you were dismayed and disheartened, unsurprisingly, by the fact that a lot of people who probably had financial means signed up for the, for the free option or the scholarship option. Um, yeah. I'm just curious on how you've reconciled that in the, in, in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, well, actually, I just made a change. You know, I mean, I could have gone, either I could have just uh, drawn a line and, and gone to a more traditional model. Uh, or, well, what I did is I just went the other way. And I said, okay, forget it. The whole thing is by gift. If you want to pay, great. You know, we can, I mean, I've got a staff of several people to produce this course. It's not cheap. I'm traveling, you know, all over the place to, to, but anyway, like, yeah, if you want to support us, great. We're grateful for your gift. And, you know, and if you don't, then we'll be fine. And it's not like, I'm not advocating that for everybody, but it just felt partly because when I got honest with myself, I maybe shouldn't be calling it a course at all. Cause I, there's not, like a product I can package mm. and deliverables that I can guarantee. It's very much of a learning journey for me too. And I don't know what the value will be. You know, originally I set it at $320, which was kind of, you know, in reference to similar things online. And, and, and you know, like, I don't know if it's going to be worth that. For some people, it'll probably be worth a lot more. For others, it will be worth less. And $320 is trivial, 
for some people and it's impossible for others. Mm. So I thought it just didn't feel good to me to even offer that as a guideline. So I basically, I just, I'm, I'm just letting go and yeah. making it a gift. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's very interesting to hear how that, how that played out. Um, because, you know, reading the comments, there were all sorts of solutions being thrown around. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a very lively debate that was going yeah. on there. Ultimately, I just had to, like, feel what really feels an in integrity for me. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I went with. And I, mean, pff, I don't I mean, know. I mean, if, if, if I don't, you know, if it doesn't break even, like, maybe I just won't do courses in the future. Or I don't know. But I'm just not even thinking about it too much. I'm, I'm focused now on making the course yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think we can all feel that. And um, yeah, let's let, let's let's make sure that people can find out about this. So, so where can we direct people to to see more details on this course? Um, the website is thesacredmasculine.net. And do you anticipate lots of females on this course as well, or do you anticipate? Yeah, it? yeah. I think I mean any you know anybody who. Um, wants to explore either their own masculine aspect or how to engage the masculine in yeah. others. Yeah. Uh, so that would definitely include women. Yeah. But I think it'll probably be at least two thirds men. I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 I think that's probably true. Cool. So the sacred masculine.net. Um, yeah. that's where you can I think find. It's, yeah. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll, my, I'll... Go on. My, my, my regular website is Charles Eisenstein.net. Cool. And I will put references to all of this uh, in the show notes. And Charles, next time you're in Australia, or if you have any plans to come to Australia, do let us know. Um, it would be great to, to collaborate. We could even put on a retreat um, where we explore some of these themes because, um, yeah, this is the time. Um, yeah. People are very interested in exploring these things. Um, yeah, I love going to Australia. It's, it's one of my favorite places. It's just, you know, such an arduous journey to fly that far. It is. It is. It's yeah. far, but there's no better place to meditate than on the plane. Mm. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Charles. It's been a real pleasure. And um, yeah, I'll make sure that we put links uh, so that people can find more about uh, the stuff that you're doing and, and, and the course that you're offering. And uh, yeah, many, many thanks and uh, keep up the good work, Charles. That's very kind of you, Jura. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.